Heavenly Father, today we come before you to hear your word. May you grant us the wisdom to understand your word so that we can come to know you better and to be more appreciative of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So speak to our hearts today by your word through your spirit and help me as your empty vessel to preach your word faithfully today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know what it feels like in your heart to be conflicted with compassion and punishment, especially towards someone that you are very fond of? If you are a parent, you will know how heartaching it can be whenever your children do something wrong which requires punishment. I'm not a parent, but I did have a dog last time, and she's like my little baby girl. Her name is Cherry, and Cherry knows that she shouldn't poop in our bedrooms. Whenever she poops in our bedrooms, our family would scold and punish her, and this is necessary. Otherwise, my little baby girl, she will not repent, and she will break this rule again in the future. Whenever she's being disciplined, she'll feel sorrowful, she'll feel ashamed. And her heart will be in so much pain to see her going through all of this agony. Like, very sayang, banyak sakit hati lah. But sometimes she doesn't even feel sorry after being punished. And we chose to reconcile her with her anyway, right? Because we love her too much. And common sense will tell us that this will likely become a disaster later. And this, my dear friends, is what it looks like for David and Absalom in our passage today. Last week, we learned that David's elder son, Amnon, he forcefully raped Tamar, who is his half-sister. Even though David was very angry with this incident, he chose not to take any action. Can you believe it? So as a result, Absalom, the brother of Tamar, he chose to take this matter into his own hands by striking Amnon dead to avoid being punished for his crime. Absalom then became a fugitive by escaping to Geshur for three years. And our passage today will continue the story. Looking at the previous chapter, verse 39, and our worst one today, we see that Joab here notices a problem. There's this problem of separation between David and Absalom, and he's determined to solve this problem. Joab knows that David is in a dilemma. David is unwilling to punish Absalom any further because he loves him too much. At the same time, David longs to see Absalom, but couldn't do so because he needs to uphold justice. So to do David a favor, Joab came up with a brilliant plan by getting the help of a wise but unnamed woman from Tekoa. Why Tekoa? Because Tekoa is about 16 kilometers south of Jerusalem, far enough that the king wouldn't be able to recognize her. Joab tells her to act like a widow who is grieving, and to make this more convincing, he tells her not to put on any oil. He then puts words into her mouth and tells her to talk to David as if she has been mourning for many days. So in verse 4, she approached David like a professional Hollywood actress by crying out, Save me, O king! And as any typical good king, David replies, Mm-hmm, what's troubling you? She said, I'm a widow, my husband is dead, and my two sons, they had an argument which led to a fight, and one of my sons killed the other in the heat of an argument. 
Now all my relatives are against me. They want to put my only remaining son to death. So please help me, O king. As you all have already suspected, this is a fictional cover story given to her from Joab. There are three things here for us to take note of which move David's heart to sympathize with her. The first is in verse 6, that the intention to murder only happened during the heat of the argument. There was no intention to kill before the argument happens. This shows that in general, her remaining son is less guilty as compared with other murderers. Secondly, in the first half of verse 7, their family was only interested in enforcing justice. They want the woman's remaining son to put to death without thinking how this will affect her. There was no consideration about compassion and mercy at all. And thirdly, at the second half of verse 7, her remaining son is her only coal that is left, meaning to say he is the only heir that is left. Once he's taken away from her, then the name of her husband line cannot continue on anymore. Quenching her coal could also mean that her son is the only remaining warm in her life. Without having her son around, there'd be no one to look after her. So she'll have no one to depend on her livelihood anymore. In response to her plea, the king said in verse 8, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. Immediately she replied, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. If you are thinking, uh, wait a second, what's going on here? Why is David sounding so cold and the woman is sounding so uh, desperate here? Well, there's actually more going on beyond the surface. By analyzing carefully, it's not that David doesn't want to help the woman out. Otherwise, he would have agreed to put, with her clan to put her son to death. The fact that he didn't shows that actually he wants to help her. He was already moved to compassion by her story. But this is not a straightforward issue because David is not above God's law. As God's chosen king, he has a duty to administer justice and equity to all his people. As God's chosen king, he's a symbol of justice for God's people. He needs to lead his nation by setting forth a good example. Therefore, he cannot just simply do things for the sake of compassion and mercy. The eyes of the palace courts, they are watching him. That's why he gave the, this lady a very neutral and politically correct answer. Go home and I will give you my decision later. But the lady doesn't want a neutral answer from him. She doesn't want to be left hanging. She wants a resolution now. She knows that David is in a dilemma between upholding justice and mercy. She knows her fictional son isn't innocent in this case. By the standards of God's law, justice demands her fictional son to be punished. Therefore, in order to solve David's dilemma, she said to him, Just help me out, O king. I know this matter isn't easy for you. If you are worried that God will hold you guilty and accountable for helping me, don't be okay. I'm willing to let my own family, father's family bear this guilt. So please help me out, alright? With this desperate answer from the wise woman, David was pressured to give her another answer. If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, 
and he shall never touch you again. But this woman, being wise, knows that David's answer is still weak. David is still giving her the politically correct answer. We know this because his words only guarantee protection for the wise woman, but he didn't say anything about protecting her son. It's very likely that David, out of compassion, gave this weak answer with the hope that others will get the king from him to back off, not to trouble the woman and her son anymore. Right, David is in a dilemma. He's trying to figure out what is the best thing to say to help her. He cannot be too obvious in helping her, and he cannot be too obvious in bending the law. He's hesitant to give a very clear answer to her because as a king, he has a duty to uphold God's law publicly to ensure that justice is enforced in Israel. Not being satisfied with the given answer, in verse 11, the woman pressured David one more time to give a clearer answer by invoking God's name to guarantee the protection of her son. So finally, David gave in and he swore an oath as requested, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Maybe he thinks it's okay to bend the law to help her since she is so pitiful. And somehow the woman is willing to bear the guilt with her father's family. So in view of all these reasons, David is probably feeling optimistic that surely others could be able to understand why he's willing to bend the rules to help her, isn't it? No one will probably fought him for bending the law to help her out. After giving the woman the answer she's looking for, now she finally has the chance to bring up the real agenda of a coward story in verse 13. She said, Why have you planned against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself in as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again. In these words, she's accusing David for being inconsistent and unfair towards Absalom. To make things clearer, what she meant is, my son and your son, both of them are murderers. You are willing to help me out, and so you are okay with saving my son. But why are you not willing to help God's people? Based on the same standard you gave to my son to help me out, you should also extend the same standard to Absalom to help God's people. So don't leave him in banishment. Otherwise, you are not doing God's people a favor at all. In fact, you are doing them a disservice because Absalom is supposedly to be the next king after you to look after Israel. So if you are willing to help me by doing my son a favor, then you should help God's people too by doing Absalom a favor. To strengthen her argument, she gave a metaphor in verse 14. As it is impossible to gather, gather water up from the ground once it's spilled, likewise we cannot bring the dead back. Basically, she's telling David, we can't bring Amnon back from the grave. But since God has not taken the life of Absalom away, that means God did not intend to let Absalom remain as an outcast forever. Things have turned out this way because they are the means God used to bring Absalom back to the kingdom. Notice that she didn't mention Absalom's name explicitly here. She was being subtle by dropping hints at David. I'm just mentioning Absalom's name here to help make things clearer and obvious to us. While David is still pondering on what she said, she quickly transitioned back to her coward story in verse 15. 
to make the entire conversation so far to be seen as not manipulative, as if the main agenda here is about her son. And the discussion about Absalom is a, by the way, speaking of this, I just happened to have a sudden thought about Absalom, you know? So she transitioned back to the conversation back to her son by saying, Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And continue in verse 16, For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son. It's kind of hard to make sense how the transition in verse 15 connects to a case in verse 16. She's not being very clear here with who the people who are the people that made her afraid? There is some ambiguity here. Maybe it's meant to be ambiguous. Those of you who have worked in the corporate world long enough, or you would probably be familiar with this trick. The trick is, sometimes it's better to use ambiguity and weakness to push for an agenda you want. It's not necessary to be clear all the time as long as you sound confident and smart. And I think this is what the woman is doing in verse 15. Right, this is to help her change the focus of the conversation back to her son to make the change look as organically as possible. Uh, besides using this ambiguous technique, she also uses the technique of flattery in verse 17, the same trick we use in corporate world today as well. Firstly, she prays the word of David which will set her at rest. Then, she praises the wisdom of David to be like the angel of God able to discern good and evil. Unfortunately, David managed to smell out her intentions and straight away suspected that it was Joab. He's the one behind pulling all these strings. But by the time David realized this, it was already too late. Even though the woman's case was a fictional case, he has already pronounced a judgment. As a king, he cannot take back his word anymore and he's being forced to extend the same standard to Absalom. All his officials are watching him. Therefore, David is not at a liberty to practice uh, double standards. As a result, he said to Joab in verse 21, Behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. But the caveat is in verse 24, Let Absalom dwell apart in his own house, he is not to come into my presence. The problem is still not fully resolved. Absalom is only partially reconciled to David. Why? Because as a king who is supposed to exercise righteousness, he cannot fully pardon Absalom's crime. David is not above God's law. And it's not that David doesn't love Absalom. David truly loves Absalom, which we will see later in chapter 18. But he's in a dilemma. If he fully pardons Absalom, then what kind of king would he be to his people? He has already banned the law earlier when Joab manipulated him with the coward story of the wise woman. He cannot compromise any further. Otherwise, he'd be no different from other corrupted politicians who govern their countries with injustice and partiality. Therefore, David must keep his distance from Absalom by banning Absalom from coming into his presence. And as we arrive to the second part of our story, notice that in verse 25, how in the eyes of all Israel, no one is as handsome as Absalom. In a way, we can say that Absalom is like the Korean Oppa of Israel. Oppa Absalom, Sarang He. 
It's very handsome. And his hair is a symbol of his beauty and majesty. Some more he seems to have like their perfect family life. Three sons and one daughter. And he's the eldest son of David after the death of Amnon. He has it all. With all his potentials and credentials. He has everything Israel is looking for as their next king after David. Virtually, all of Israel is having a celebrity crush on Absalom. Despite all the amazing potential that he has, he is still separated from his father even after two years. His new situation is not much different from being banished. From this, we can pretty much guess how frustrated Absalom must have been. So imagine if you are Absalom and you are being punished for taking things into your own hands by killing your brother Amnon because your father refused to do anything about the situation. Your father has let you down and your father is now punishing you for something that he was at fault to. So you ran away from home for three years thinking that your father will never forgive you. But somehow, he has called you home. So you thought maybe he has already forgiven you and he will restore you and things are going to be great again. Yeah, sure, your father wasn't perfect and he did let you down. But maybe this time, you can hit the reset button by leaving the past behind and move on with life. So you packed your belongings and you went home. But things didn't turn out as you expected because your father gave you the cold shoulder and the silent treatment for the next two years, leaving you hanging. And you don't know what's going to happen next. For two years, you waited and waited, hoping that your father will restore you. But nothing happened. And you have all the credentials and potentials, and the whole country is expecting you to be the next king. Are things just going to end this way? Will all your potentials be wasted and flushed down to the toilet? So you asked Joab for help, but he didn't want to see you. No wonder Absalom felt frustrated. No wonder he became angry. No wonder he set Joab's fuel on fire. But at last, he has finally gotten Joab's attention. So Joab asked him in verse 31, Why have your servants set my fuel on fire? Absalom replied, Behold, I send word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's any guilt in me, let him put me to death. Indeed for Absalom, it's better for him to remain banished at Geshur. Because at least from there, he can move on with his life. But now he's stuck, being left hanging by David for two years and he doesn't know what the future will be for him. However, in this section, you can get to see more of Absalom's flawed character. Firstly, notice how when Joab fails to solve the problem with words, Absalom attempted to solve the problem with violence when he ran out of patience and he burned Joab's field. Secondly, he's still unrepentant for murdering Amnon. When he said, let me go into the presence of the king and if there's any guilt in me, notice the word if, if. This word if shows us that he doesn't think he did anything wrong. He is not admitting guilt on this matter. And it's not surprising that Absalom is unrepentant when we look at verse 27. 
He named his daughter Tema, who shares the same name as his sister. And his daughter has grown up to be a beautiful woman, just like his sister. This shows us how fond Absalom is when it comes to his sister. It is also a hint telling us that Absalom is not the kind that will forgive and forget when someone messes with his beloved sister seven years ago. That's why he's still unrepentant. He doesn't think it's wrong for him to murder Amnon and David chose not to do anything and just sweep this issue under the rug. And the third flaw of Absalom is that he's a psychopath. He knows that David loves him too much not, and he will not kill him. So he used this to take advantage of David. That's why he dares to enter into David's presence and say, if there's good in me, let him put me to death. So in verse 33, Joab went to the king. You don't know what he said to David, but the end result we see is a so-called complete reconciliation between David and Absalom. It's quite an awkward reconciliation. There were no tears, no warm, no celebration, no feasting. There's only a kiss from David, but only for the purpose of giving Absalom a formal recognition. As much as he loves Absalom, we can understand why it's difficult for David to be affectionate. Because how can he be affectionate towards Absalom when Absalom is still being unrepentant? It's like you know your children did something wrong and you tried to discipline them, but that didn't work out. Your children didn't feel remorseful, but because you love your children so much, so you give up on punishing them. And that's how David felt. For his first son, David chose not to punish. And for the second son, he again chose not to punish, which will lead to another tragedy in our next chapter. So what have we learned in today's passage? Today's passage shows us the consequences of David's sin, beginning from Bathsheba, leading from one tragedy, tragedy to another tragedy, one compromise to another compromise. Even the so-called reconciliation he had with Absalom, which seems to resolve the problem, is questionable. Firstly, even though Absalom is guilty, David is partly guilty too for not taking any action when Amnon raped Tamar. Secondly, by extending mercy towards Absalom, David has compromised God's law. Thirdly, Absalom was not even repentant. He doesn't feel sorry and remorseful for killing Amnon when he wasn't authorized to do so. Plus, he's a very violent man. As handsome and good-looking Absalom is, he's not God's chosen king. Remember what happened to King Saul? He has met all the worldly expectations of Israel. Yet he failed, and Absalom is no different. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let this be a reminder to us, dear brothers and sisters, not to focus so much on the externals. You know, within this church or outside this church, everyone that we meet will expect different things from us. Some expectations are good and godly, where we are expected to grow in our godliness. But some expectations are just merely external qualifications with not much consideration given to godliness at all. More often than not, we will feel pressured to give into these external expectations to please people. Then we'll be tempted to think, like, ah, if only I'm as handsome as Absalom and have a very rich father like David, 
then maybe I can become a Korean opa celebrity. Or if I'm as talented as this guy, as rich as this guy, I'm a doctor, entrepreneur, I have all the three C's, cash, credit card, condominium, then everyone will like me. But dear friends, we need to know that the externals are not always the most important thing. Godliness must come first. For God looks at our heart and not at our outward appearance. That is why we need encouragement from each other to be more Christ-like day by day. That's why we need more discipleship so that we can help each other to grow towards the right direction, to grow towards maturity in Christ. And God has given us so many amazing and wonderful opportunities in this church to grow, such as joining a growth group, we have kids' church discipling the children, we have Tuesday night training, personal follow-up, and so on. So let us make use of all these wonderful opportunities that God has provided to us to grow together in Christ. Also in our passage today, just because God has forgiven David's sin doesn't mean that God has given the right to David to forgive Absalom's sin. It was also wrong for Joab to assume that God wants David to pardon Absalom. And wrong for Joab also to assume Absalom is meant to be the next king. In fact, he manipulated David not only to compromise the law of God, but also to swear in God's name, which is actually a violation of the second commandment. His mistake is in assuming too much of what God wants to do with Absalom, even though God has not spoken a word to him. Joab tries to copy what the prophet Nathan said to David two chapters ago, but Joab here is no prophet. Brothers and sisters, this warns us that we mustn't be too presumptuous in assuming God's will for our life. We must always let Scripture guide us and not go against what God said in His Word. Any decision we make in our life must always be aligned with Scripture because God never wants us to make any decision that will contradict His Word. Finally, in our passage today, we have seen the flaws of David and Absalom. This passage shows us that we need a better king. We need a king who is godly, a king who will not compromise, a king who will not bend the law. And thanks be to God for sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be our king. Unlike Absalom, whose external appearance radiates glory, but lacking in godliness entirely, Jesus exemplifies godliness and a spirit of profound humility because he willingly laid down his eternal glory by taking the form of a servant and did not count equality with God. He is a king who will not be caught in a dilemma of upholding both justice and mercy. As sinners, the law of God tells us that we deserve to die. We deserve to suffer eternal condemnation and to be separated from Jesus forever and ever like how Absalom deserved to be punished and to be separated from David. But on the cross, Jesus took on the full punishment of our sins so that today, if we put our faith in Him, we can be reconciled to Him. On the cross, both justice and mercy are fulfilled in Christ. What the law demands, the gospel tells us that Jesus has paid the penalty of our sins in full. 
and he rose again on the third day so that now we can boldly come into his presence. So let us not respond like Absalom who is self-entitled. He thinks he deserves to be reconciled with David because of all his external qualifications. We have sinned and we need to repent and none of our qualifications can make God forgive us. God is not going to look at all of our achievements and say, wow, you are so successful in your career, you are so nice, everyone likes you, you are Mr. Popular, you grew up in a prestigious Christian family, okay lah, then you can go to heaven. No, because the gospel promised that only those who turn away from their sins and come to Jesus by faith can only be reconciled to him. Absalom was given five years to repent, but he didn't. Let's not be like him. Let's not harden our hearts. Let's not wait for another five years. Let's not even wait until tomorrow. Because today is the day for us to repent and come to Jesus, to trust Him as our Lord and Savior, so that all of our sins may be pardoned and that we may be reconciled to Him. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we can boldly come into His presence. We can rejoice because Jesus is the perfect King. He's the perfect king who's able to show mercy and uphold justice at the same time because he died for us on the cross. Therefore, let us come to him in humility and repentance. In view of all this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that as sinners, we don't deserve your forgiveness. But we thank you that we can rejoice in the reconciliation we have with Christ who gave himself up for our sins. We thank you that on the cross, both justice and mercy are fulfilled and that we can freely come into your presence through your Son. So help us, Father, to respond to our passage today by always being grateful for what Jesus has done for us. Truly, indeed, he's the king that we need. So help us to submit to him as our king throughout our entire lives by being obedient to your word. In his name we pray. Amen.